If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this March 3rd, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned totally upside down. As is usually the case, hour number two is our guest hour. Uh, this particular week is a very special guest. Uh, we are using this interview both on the World According to Zig podcast as well as the uh, the bulk of the Individual One podcast, which we hope you will check out. Our Twitter uh, handle there is Individual One pod that's individual the number one pod and uh, you can uh, find a, a link to the individual one podcast at freespeechbroadcasting.com our guest is a longtime esteemed conservative political commentator a guy who i agree with on virtually everything although not uh, everything as you'll find out soon uh, but he is also the person uh, certainly known as the uh, what i refer to as the godfather of the never trump conservative movement uh, his name is bill crystal bill crystal welcome to the podcast thanks john good to be with you uh, it's always great to be with you bill and um one of the things that we have in common is we both love a, a quote from uh, eric hoffer uh, yeah. Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. I know you tweet that often, and since we're doing this interview the day after CPAC ends, uh, I think it's particularly appropriate to start this interview by mentioning that. What were your thoughts on this particular edition of, of CPAC? You know, and, and the great minds work uh, work together or work similarly category. I actually cited that quote this morning on television, so um, we're even more in sync than usual. The, uh, I mean, what a far, I mean, feedback was always, you know, part fun, part uh, salesmanship, part antics. But it used to be, as I recall, part ideas and part politicians making their case uh, to the public and, and part actually engaging some non-conservatives on issues where there were coalitions. There was just a tad of that this year on one or two issues, I think, criminal justice reform, a little bit of a discussion of defense. But it was mostly uh, what you would expect in the age of Trump, I'm afraid, which is a combination of demagoguery, some of it pretty off-putting, uh, just clownishness. Uh, which is okay to a degree, but not when it becomes the main, uh, you know, the kind of main uh, route of a movement, so to speak, the main, the heart of a movement, and then a fair amount of of, of grift and uh, and racket, you know, the the racket side of things was pretty well pretty well uh, represented too. 
Bill, I was a uh, co-sponsor of CPAC back in 2009 when I had a documentary film come out about Barack Obama. And I, I believed uh, very quickly that CPAC was a racket and, and a fraud. And that's nothing compared to what it is now. And over time, it used to anger me that this was representing conservatism. But this year, it turned to laughter for me. I, I now think it's a joke. I'm curious, is, where, where are you on, on, on that grieving process? <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm pretty much where you are, and that the the bulwark which I work with sent a, a liberal reporter who's very lively and colorful, Molly Jong Fast, to cover it. Probably she just didn't take it seriously and didn't take any of the ideological discussions seriously. I think the broader question, and I think you and I might be in similar places on this too, is, I mean, what does it say about the conservative movement, and and are we in a grieving process about that? And maybe, you know, maybe that's also just the way movements are, right? They they accomplish a lot. They're animated by ideas, but they are, as the term movement suggests, kind of a, you know, they're a thing that moves along, they're, they're, and they can become either encrusted with kind of old ideas and ideologies and orthodoxies that aren't quite uh, relevant to the new times. I think there's been some of that with conservatism, obviously, uh, and a kind of unthinkingness, and then just a kind of... Uh, Degeneration, as, as Hoffer suggests, into into the the uh, grifter side of things, and then Trump makes it all so much worse. I mean, I guess that's what I'm struck by. I I, I take your point that in 2009 it was nothing great, but I mean, it's one thing to have a nothing great uh, yearly meeting for three days as part of a broader movement that has serious people reasonably serious people leading it in Congress and as presidential nominees and as governors and so forth. It's another thing to have a three-day clown show uh, that is at the heart of the movement because the president and the vice president of the United States speak there and the president is greeted with adulation. Well, Bill, I, I want to make one other point about CPAC because this will broaden it to what happened to the conservative movement. I'm very curious to get your take on this. I, I'm amazed, and I'm not even 100% sure you know about this, although you probably do. I'm amazed that when it comes to CPAC and Trump that no one ever mentions how this thing evolved. People don't know that in 2011, 2012, because Trump was not a conservative, he paid $50,000 on two different occasions to be able to speak at, at CPAC. It was a pay-for-play situation, and it gave him conservative street cred, which I I believe led to the him uh, giving Romney his endorsement and Romney uh, effectively uh, elevating Trump by accepting that endorsement, which then set the stage for 2016. And it's my belief, Bill, that that was the nose of the camel inside the tent where Trump realized that the conservative movement was largely a racket and that it was ripe for a hostile takeover. What do you make of that theory? You know, I'd sort of vaguely known that once and forgotten it. And I think it's fascinating, uh, as you say it, and has an awful lot of truth to it. I mean, he saw that hucksterism would not hurt you among an awful lot of conservatives. It would be excused by some, and then just almost embraced by others who I think uh, despairing of winning an election after two successive defeats. I mean, two, two defeats is not that many in the big picture, you might say, especially with special circumstances, at least in the first case, and with uh, you know, the huge recession of 2008. Anyway, but after two defeats, and despite conservative successes at the state level and in Congress, there was that desperation that Trump was able to take advantage of. I wonder how many conservatives looked at him and said, you know what, he is a huckster. Maybe we need, we need our own huckster. We need our own demagogue. Don't you hear that a lot from people? I mean, when I complain about Trump, the first word I was at a dinner this week at a university uh, after giving a talk, students and faculty, the students were great. The students were non-Trump conservatives. They were just desperate for something to, to, to look to, to look up to, people to look up to. Uh, they were studying these thinkers that you and I respect and wanted to, to 
know, what political movement in the future was going to, you know, embody a respect for free markets, American leadership in the world, policies that fostered personal responsibility, and so forth. But uh, one of the faculty members, interestingly, at this dinner, it was kind of a conservative, said to me, well, Trump won, you know, and all these other people didn't win. And I, I think it, so it doesn't only not hurt Trump to be something of a con man and a huckster. There's a kind of admiration for that among an awful lot of conservatives today. Bill, I agree with you totally. I, I actually think that there are also a percentage of conservatives that just love to be entertained. I think that they love uh, the, the, you know, the, the entire entertainment aspect of it. And I, I'm curious, Bill, in, in, in that vein, do, do you think that people like you and I misread who conservatives were, or did those people change? How, what happened? Well, I'm sure a little of both. I totally agree about the entertainment. I, the one thing I really feel I misread in the primary fight was just how much of a benefit it was to Trump to have had that reality TV show for a long time. It was it 12, 14 years, I think? And well-ranked show. And people sort of believed the image that he portrayed or that his producers uh, helped him portray on that show of the kind of likable, sort of roguish, decisive businessman who knows what he's doing. And um, but, and you tell people this is a TV show, it's scripted. And, nope, my, I, I, but did they really not understand it was scripted? I started to ask myself after the third or fourth of this conversation, or do they not want to even hear that because they kind of want to believe. They kind of know it's a con, but they kind of like the con. And the ultimate joke is on the left, after all, they tell themselves, I mean, we'll see about that, but that's what they tell themselves. So, yeah, I don't know how much of this was – some of it was always there. I love politics in America. If you read about democratic politics, American politics in the 19th century, people come over from Europe and they say, God, it's just a spectacle, you know, three-hour speeches, and, and they have these conventions with elephants and donkeys and balloons. You know, there's always been a fair amount of that in, right. in, in a democratic uh, country like ours and in an entertainment-loving country like ours. But I think what's true about a lot of things about Trump, you can find a lot of aspects of Trumpism that were there already in conservatism, in the Republican Party, in our politics more broadly. No question about that. Still, you can have a lot of aspects of things which are there. They occasionally pop out. They, they color things a little bit. But that's different from having them take over. I guess that's what I always come back to. My friend Charlie Sykes says that, you know, uh, kind of Trumpism, the, the kind of bigotry, the xenophobia, the nativism, was always a recessive gene in the Republican Party. Uh, but one important thing about a recessive gene is that it's recessive, you know, and most of the time it, it kind of kept under wraps. And and that's the Trump sort of saw these opportunities, saw these, these, these instincts, uh, and really capitalized on them and has been willing to appeal to them in a demagogic way, in a way that almost no other that very few other American politicians have. Certainly no one else has become president. It's one thing to sort of, you know, want to say, look, some of my uh, supporters might be bigoted. Frankly, they might like some of my positions on busing, let's say. But nonetheless, I'm against busing because it's bad policy, and I'm going to make that argument, and I can't really be, it's not really my fault if some of the people who agree with me agree with me for bad reasons. I would say that would be maybe your average Republican politician's view, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, today, the, the, the sort of the mask is off, though, and the dog whistles and and uh, and other appeals are pretty blatant. And uh, and Trump again in, in using those 
makes things worse. I guess it's not you know, that people say, well, Trump will go, come and go. You know, I, he'll come and go, but he'll do damage uh, once he's he will have done damage even when he's gone. All right. Well, I want to talk about that. And, and just to put it in slightly different terms, I view it as Trump basically opened up the gates and the inmates have taken over the asylum. And there's been a, a coup of conservatism and it's no longer conservatism. And even people who previously were conservative now are at least temporarily claiming to not be. I don't even know what you call Trumpism other than Trumpism itself, but that that's my view on it. And I, and Bill, I, you know, you and I agree on so much, but where we differ a lot is in the issue of optimism versus pessimism. I, I admire your optimism. I really do. Uh, I'm a pessimist by nature. And I, so I have to ask you, are you still optimistic about how conservatism survives Trump? And if you are, why? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm really quite as optimistic as, uh, as you say I am, or as I sometimes perhaps uh, pretend to be. My father once said that he was a cheerful pessimist, and I guess I've always tried to take that as a as a guideline. And was it Gramsci? I mean, one of those Marxists, I think, who said that he was uh, a philosophical pessimist, or that one should one had to be a philosophical pessimist, but an operational optimist. And there's some truth to that. I mean, however pessimistic one might be, uh, you know, one has to one has to be. Uh, clear-eyed in seeing the situation. You shouldn't let optimism blind yourself to things. But, you know, take the Republican Party, where I think you think it's more hopeless than I do that a challenger might defeat Trump or, or even do some good in opposing Trump and planting a flag for the future. But I guess my sense on that is you got to try. You know, we, we can't just let one of the two major parties devolve into Trumpism and sort of for the next 20 years if we can avoid it. So I guess I'm 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 not sure how different we are so philosophically, but I guess I'm having been in Washington all these years, sort of see the virtues of a kind of operational. Uh, no, I get optimism. that. I get it. And I, as I said, I, I admire it to a certain degree. But let's take this out of the theoretical and put it into the practical. Since you've mentioned yeah. it, I mean, you are the you know well known as the guy trying to find a uh, an opponent for Trump in a Republican primary. Uh, you actually provided me a quote from a media column I did about this a couple of weeks ago, where my take basically was. It ain't going to happen, at least not in an effective way. And look, I am all about uh, losing uh, principled fights. I mean, I've done it throughout my entire career. My wife, yeah, right. we're both, we're both, we're both got a good track record on that. I right, think. right, right. So, I mean, I have no problem with doing something for the principle of it, but it's it at least can't be perceived as a complete and total disaster. Have you accepted that Donald Trump is going to be the 2020 Republican presidential nominee? No, no, because I think, look, it's a long way away. He would be if the primary were today. We don't know what Mueller will find. We don't know where the economy will be. We don't know what else we'll learn. We don't know what foreign policy disasters. I hope there aren't any, but they could follow from Trump's policies. He's being helped a huge amount by the good economy and by the lack of obvious foreign policy disasters so far. So I think there's a chance he won't be the nominee, and not a trivial chance either, not a 50% chance, but I don't know, 20, 25%, something like that. And you know, I think it's worth fighting that fight. It's also worth fighting the fight to get 35 or 40 percent of the uh, of Republicans and independents in New Hampshire to vote against him and to say, going to after he loses in the general election, if he does, to say that, look, there's an alternate Republican okay. future, and some people voted okay. for it in 2020 in the primaries. So I'm, I'm for taking a shot. Now, look, a year from now, we'll do this again a year from now, if, you, if you'll have me again, and we'll discuss this, and maybe we'll, we'll all have decided, okay, it's hopeless, Trump's uh, okay. coasting to the Republican but, but, okay, but, uh, nomination. But Bill, but Bill, and I'm glad to have you back in a year, hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll both still be standing, but, but the point I'm thinking is, 
Give me a path. Tell me who's going to beat him or even can give him a, a tough fight. I mean, William Weld? Seriously? Well, Larry, no, no. I think, well, I think Weld is unlikely to I think Weld can fight him some and, and, and wound him a bit. But now Governor Hogan or Senator Sass or people who are real people in public life who've won elections and, and are currently in office or in some cases, other cases, maybe very recently in office. Uh, Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, very impressive guy. I don't know. If one of them ran, I think it could get interesting. Okay, but is there any also, indication? The point I'd make is, look, if a year from now I'm wrong, and your pessimism is vindicated. I guess we'll all have to figure out what we're going to do in terms of who, who do we support or, or do we sit it out or, or what. But, I mean, I, I think it would be good to have to at least take a shot. Look, I'm all for taking a shot. You don't have any indication that those people you mentioned are actually going to make a legitimate run against Trump, do you? Yeah, I think Larry Hogan is really thinking seriously about it. And, yeah. and, and why do you think that he could make headway? Well, because he's a moderately Republican, but still Republican. Uh, I mean, moderate Republican or moderate conservative Republican, but still a real Republican, a governor of a, of a state that's, of course, a Democratic state, so he's had to compromise across the aisle, which is both strengths and weaknesses, but a serious guy who uh, is a, a good retail politician, has been a good governor, is a grown-up, is kind of a, you know, would be a responsible steward of the country's affairs, not super charismatic, perhaps, maybe that's a good contrast to Trump. Let, let me uh, outline more about why I'm pessimistic, because I think the record has shown that uh, the, the adage that Trump himself created that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his fans wouldn't care has been borne out time yeah. and time again. We've seen it even with the Michael Cohen testimony this week. I don't think there's going to be any major uh, political damage done to him, at least in the short run, by that. Who knows in the long run? I, I, I am not a believer that Mueller is going to come f forward with some sort of nuclear bomb with regard to collusion. In fact, I think the collusion theory has been taking a hit as of late, especially in the Cohen testimony. But even if even if things happen, that, that like you're saying, well, you know, the economy could uh, collapse or something bad could happen with the Mueller or what have you. I don't see a celebrity primary challenger. Your magazine, The Weekly Standard, is no longer around. Charles Krauthammer is no longer around to give a foothold at Fox News Channel. No John McCain, uh, no Jeff Flake, no Bob Corker, no George and Barbara Bush. So where's there? It, it's just you, Bill. I mean, I, I mean, where's the infrastructure for for mounting a counter movement within the Republican Party? You know, so look, we've raised a little money at, at our, our our little organization, Defending Democracy Together, and we've got people actually in some of the, in the states we've been dealing with so far, which is mostly Iowa, New Hampshire, a little bit South Carolina, California, which will now have an early primary. I'm going out there tomorrow to speak to a bunch of Republicans who are getting together. And there are people who want to help against Trump. Would they be as numerous as the people who are going to help Trump? No. But again, it sort of depends also what happens over the next year. So I'm not quite as quite as despairing as, as you are. I take your point that uh, it would be nice to have a, a bit bigger infrastructure. But I think as the Gene McCarthy campaign against Johnson shows in 67, even Reagan, honestly, in 75, 76 against Ford, you know, the infrastructure kind of can come together quickly if there's an attractive candidate, if there's a sense of urgency, if there's a sense of crisis. Trump has benefited so much from the fact that even though we're alarmed because of what it says about the rule of law and some of the other things that Trump is president and is getting away with all these things or so far getting away with them, uh, um, you know, a lot of American normal voters are sort of living, you know, the economy's pretty good and we're not in some Vietnam-type debacle. So people say, okay, let's not get too, you know, too, too worked up about this, but I'm not sure as we get closer to an actual election where people have to decide whether four more years of Trump is, is, is the right thing 
uh, that he's quite as strong as we think. I've been struck in some of the polling we've done, and, and I've seen a couple of focus groups we've done. People, there are a lot of reluctant Trump supporters, a lot of moderates and conservatives, especially conservatives, who said, not so many moderates, who say, you know, I approve of the tax cuts, I approve of the judges, I don't like a lot of that other stuff, but you know, it doesn't really matter that much. And they say, and I approve of him, he's better than Hillary Clinton, he's better than Nancy Pelosi, he's better than the liberal media, et cetera, et cetera. But when you ask them, well, going forward, are you comfortable, are you confident for an additional four years for Trump? Then they kind of get, say, I'm not so sure about that. And that includes a lot of Republicans, and these are focus groups of Republicans. So, again, I, I mean, look, you know, you may be right, and honestly, you know, I'll fight the fight for the next year, and if you're right, you're right, and then we'll all have to figure out what to do here. I'm not say- but Bill, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying don't fight. Although no, I, I, know, I, no, I, no. I do, I do think though. By the way, there's going to have to be a decision to make to be made as, as to uh, whether or not you, you reach the threshold of a a valiant effort that's respected and one that actually strengthens Trump because he allows uh, him to destroy somebody and and further cement his his iron fisted hold on the Republican Party. I think that's going to be a tough call. Yeah, fair, it, fair, fair, fair enough. Uh, um, by the way, one other point, uh, just real quick. You mentioned 1968, and granted, that's a different world. Uh, but I want to mention one thing that I think you're going to agree with. The 1968 situation on the Democratic side where Johnson decides not to run for re-election because uh, of what he perceived to be an embarrassing performance in the New Hampshire primary, where he wasn't even on the ballot, all right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't even on the ballot. He decided to do that in a situation where his popularity was very similar to Trump's uh, going into 2020, but he did that out of his own sense of dignity. Trump doesn't have that. Trump Trump is not going to decide, you know what, I'm just too unpopular to run for re-election. He, his ego will not allow that, Bill. You know that. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. not <laughs> okay. Let's we'll to beat him fair and square. Okay, fair uh, enough. All right, now, a couple other uh, bigger points in regard to uh, conservatism. Um, I, I, of the challenges... It's it's funny, Bill. I'm sure you find it humorous how uh, the Trumpsters attack people like you and I all the time, even though we're supposed to be totally irrelevant. I've never heard of a group of people who are more irrelevant that get attacked more often uh, than people like like uh, you are. Uh, but of of the of the challenges to to the never Trumpers, the one that is is most stupefying to me is that serious people, even in, in office who are Republicans and conservatives, will claim that he has done better, meaning Trump, has done better than we expected. That, to me, is my favorite or most stupefying rationalization of the Trump people, because to me, it's been far worse than I had ever thought it could be. Uh, What do you make of that particular rationalization, and do you have your own favorite rationalization on behalf of of Trump? I mean, in terms of, I think, the failure to in any way rise to the presidency, therefore the degradation of constitutional norms and democratic procedures and uh, and so forth, I think he's been as bad or worse than I expected, a little worse. I did think there'd be a little more of an attempt to sort of, uh, you know, to change his his nature and his character. Uh, The economy's been okay, he's been fine, Uh, continued on the path that was on when he took over. Uh, some of the deregulation probably helped. The tax bill's pretty, I'm pretty dubious about that, but we'll see where that is a year from now. But I think that's what people mean when they say it's been better. There's been no crash of the markets and the judges. He followed the Federal Society, you know, recommendations, so he's appointed uh, mostly solid conservative right. judges. Uh, foreign policy, we haven't really paid too much for price yet. You could argue for the you know, so many ridiculous and irresponsible things he said and done 
I very much, I very much worry we will pay it. I think we're almost certain to pay a price at some point, and I worry it'll be sooner rather than later. So I'm in the camp that I see why I see what people mean when they use that rationalization, but I think it's extremely short-sighted. It's like saying that you know you're in some I mean to use an obvious metaphor, maybe exaggerated when you're the fires hasn't gotten quite here yet. So what's to worry about, you know? Or, or I mean, the damage he's doing is real. I think I think it's going to become increasingly evident, but people can can kid themselves for quite a while. Rationalization for me, that's the you mentioned Eric Harford at the beginning of this of this discussion. Yeah, he's famous for writing a book called I think The True Believer, right? Or True Believers. So he's a true believer, I think. And it was about how people could talk themselves into believing in something like communism or fascism, you know, when all the evidence was against it. And that was such a big phenomenon of the forties, thirties, forties, fifties. for me the big lesson of the last couple of years hasn't been so much true believers, there's some of that, but true rationalizers. I mean, the degree to which people can sort of step-by-step step talk themselves into accepting someone like Trump, and parts of Trumpism, incidentally. And two or three years ago, they would have been repulsed. A year ago, they would have been put off, but maybe a little, well, maybe we can live with it. Six months ago, it was... Yeah, you know, we can live with it, and maybe there are a few good things about it. And now it's, hey, we're all in. This is great. I mean, the degree to which people have slid down that slope and the speed with which they have, I do find that pretty astonishing. It's a cult, isn't it, Bill? I think it's become a little bit of a cult. I mean, he won, and winning is a big deal in politics and football and other things. And I just, you know, he won with an inside straight, and he was lucky, and he had Comey, and he had this and that, but nonetheless, he won. And people use that as the kind of final rationalization. I thought, I think you and I may have both thought this, that the November elections, pretty bad defeat for Republicans, might right. begin to shake people's confidence that Trump right. is a winner. But they've just kind of glossed over that and yep. decided, I don't know, he, that doesn't count. He wasn't on the ballot. And right. He's going to win again, you know. Well, that, that's why it's a cult. And, you know, and you use the, the metaphor of a fire. I have a slightly different one, although similar. I think it's a house that's infested with termites. Yeah, that's better. A house that's not quite visible. You know, right, so right. We, one, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the house looks like it's fine. Everyone, oh, yeah. Look, the house is fine. Well, um, you know, wait five years and see whether that house is still there. And, and, you know, and that gets me to where I think we're headed, uh, Bill, and I live here in California, where we have no Republican conservative attempt to to hold the line against liberal socialism especially post arnold schwarzenegger and while there are differences i believe post trump we're headed for post arnold schwarzenegger california republicanism where the trump cult is gone and the suburbs are gone and what's left is not enough to hold the line what do you make of that theory i think some version of that is very possible my colleague John McCormick used to say at the Weekly Standard a couple of years ago that he thought the ultimate, well, as all these conservatives were defending Trump, he's our last hope against the left, that he said, are you kidding? Four years, eight years from now, Trump is going to have strengthened the left immeasurably. He will have discredited the right. He will have discredited conservatives in the Republican Party. The left will move left in reaction to Trump. But they won't even pay a political price, or they may not pay a political price, because Trump will have so discredited uh, the alternative, which what will appear to be the only alternative. So I very much agree with that. I mean, if, if, if free market economics, conservative economics, uh, Republican economics becomes Trump, Trump economics, which is protectionism plus uh, crony capitalism plus uh, huge ballooning 
deficit, debt and deficits, deficits. Um, then you know what's our argument against against left wing policies? Really, is that are we going to Republicans? Can they make the deficit argument with a straight face? Can they can they say government shouldn't pick winners and losers? Should they say that markets really help you know everyone? And uh, I mean, it just so I very much agree that that the one of the bad effects of Trumpism is going to be a strengthening of the left. I think he's doing the left's work for them. He has broken the back of philosophical conservatism, yeah. and, and and the backlash to him is going to, uh, I believe, bring in the worst of socialism that Hillary Clinton could never have dreamed of, especially when she was going to have a Republican Congress. We would still have a Republican Congress right now if Hillary had won. Uh, I, I mean, I, I get mocked all the we time. Would have, we would have like 58 Republican senators probably and have yes. a very, very strong Republican Congress, actually. I yeah. agree with that. She would, be, she would be powerless. I mean, I mean, I get mocked because I actually say to I mean, watch their eyes glaze over that conservatism in the long run would have been far better off if Hillary had won. Do you agree with that? Yes. And and uh, along those lines, I, the, of course, the left will always over, overplay their hand. They always do this. This is their their chronic uh, vulnerability, and they will lo- probably overplay their hand when it comes to picking a candidate in 2020. But let's presume for a second the candidate is Donald Trump. And, and the Democratic candidate, somehow, the Democrats are sensible and they nominate Joe Biden, assuming he runs. Who does Bill Kristol vote for between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? I, mean, I really I don't think I could vote for Trump. I might be able to vote for Biden. I might, uh, I suppose, sit it out. But I, I mean, I think at this point, I'm willing to put up with a Democratic administration and things about it that I really won't like, just to try to get the, the country back into sort of reasonable order some respect for the rule of law, even though Biden's version of it isn't quite my version of it. Uh, some sensible foreign policy, even though Biden's version of it isn't quite my version. And a real attempt then to, as you just said, uh, or following up on what you just said, to try to reestablish a kind of sensible conservative alternative. It might not be everything I would like, exactly the conservatism I would prefer. I'm, I've never been, you know, none of us has ever demanded perfection or purity, I don't believe, from our Republicans, from the Republican leaders we've supported or the conservative thinkers we've read and admired. They all differ among themselves, obviously, but something reasonable and, and sensible, constitutional, uh, and serious, you know, uh, on the conservative side. I think that's the, that will be the task if there's a Democratic president in 2021. Is there, are there any other candidates running on the Democratic side that you could see yourself voting for over Trump? I mean, there's so many that, you know, so, yeah, I think a couple of these governors are, are not crazy. Hickenlooper in Colorado and the governor of Montana. and uh, I don't know, Klobuchar seems to throw things at her staff occasionally, but her actual <laughs> policies might not be crazy. So I'm, I'm honestly, you know, well, let's see where they all are in a year, I guess, is my attitude. Fair enough. Bill Crystal. thanks so much for your time. Thanks for fighting the good fight and standing up for your principles. We really do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, John. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks so much to Bill Crystal for his uh, time and for his always interesting commentary. I think the uh, the key difference between the two of us there is obviously, as I suggested, my pessimism versus his optimism. But when you look at the details, even Bill, I think, is forced to acknowledge that there's a good chance that I'm right. I, the way I interpreted it, although your interpretation may be different since you're not the person doing the interview and it's not about you. But uh, it, from my perspective, Bill, I think, senses I'm right. He just doesn't want to admit that I'm right yet, which I admire. I admire his optimism and I'm all for fighting as long as that fight doesn't actually cause more harm than good. And that's going to be a fine line, especially when it comes to the issue of whether or not Trump should be primaried. 
if you think that Trump uh, can be held into, you know, the, the 55, 60 percentile and he'll just win the, the election in a, in, a, in a fairly long slog, at least have to fight a couple of primaries, uh, do, do some debates, that would be productive. That's a loss I could get behind. I don't see that scenario yet. And, and, and Bill's right not to write it off yet, but I think it's overly optimistic to think that that, that is a reasonable likelihood. I hope I'm wrong. I hope Bill is right. Uh, but when it comes to things in general and the Trump era in particular, pessimism hasn't been wrong all that often. And uh, the, the number of things that we have seen that should have hurt Trump that have not lead me to believe that uh, at least with the bulk, whether it's 75, 80 percent, somewhere in that range of the Republican Party, he's almost untouchable. Now, I agree, as, as Bill suggested, that there is there's different levels of the cult. Let's be clear. 80% of the Republican Party is not a cult. What that percentage of cultum is, I'm not sure. It's probably at least 45, 50%. And so therefore, Trump starts right there, which is almost impossible to beat with a non-celebrity candidate with limited resources going up against the sitting president of the United States. There is some soft Trump support, but they're not going to abandon him, especially in a primary. And you got to remember, Primaries are all about the people that are most enthusiastic. <laughs> Nobody's going to provide more enthusiasm than Trump is for his cult. I'm sorry. You might be able to beat him. I mean, I wouldn't be able to beat him, but you might be able to come close to beating him in a national poll. But that when it comes to actually getting people out to vote in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, I'm sorry. I just don't see that happening. I don't see the candidate or the circumstances. Circumstances can change, but I've seen no sign that they're going to. But regardless... I, uh, I very much appreciate the time and the perspective of Bill Crystal. As is always the case, uh, I ask only a couple things of you. Make sure you check out the Individual One podcast, by the way. So I'll add a third uh, and uh, follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Uh, but also uh, share this particular podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets or the English term sheets, uh, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.